Hi, my name is Lauren, and you're listening to the New Narratives in the History of Philosophy podcast. Today we'll be hearing from Catherine Brading and Annelise Ray in a conversation moderated by Alexandra Johnson. Good morning. Uh, I'm Alexandra Johnson. I'm a senior at Penn studying philosophy, and I'm here as part of the New Narratives and History of Philosophy podcast series. Um, I'm also minoring in gender, sexuality, and women's studies, so I'm really drawn to the history of women in philosophy. So I'm really honored to be here today with Professors Catherine Breeding of Duke University and Annelise Ray of the University of Paris, Nanterre, who are both eminent scholars of the 18th century philosopher Emily de Chatelet. So welcome to Penn to you both. Um, so just starting out, uh, du Chatelet was one of the very few women, I think, who were accorded meaningful recognition in philosophy and the sciences in her time. So I was wondering if you could both speak to how gender informed her approach to natural philosophy specifically. Okay. Uh, thank you. <laughs> I am happy to, to be here with you <laughs> and to discuss about uh, natural philosophy in Emily du Chatelet's texts. It seems to me that three things can be answered to your question. First, her social work has made many things much easier for her. This is not the same time, but if we compare socially the recognition she enjoyed, she received, the, the relationships she has established with the way Louise Michel was treated and welcomed, uh, we understand the importance of social position. Louise Michel, I don't know if you know her, no. No, is an anarchist, a teacher close to Victor Hugo uh, who fights to defend the commune in 1870 in Paris. She is called the Black Virgin and she is sent to New Caledonia for deportation several, several times imprisoned. In her memoirs, memories, she writes, the question of woman is especially at the present time inseparable from the question of humanity. Women, especially, are the human cattle that are crushed and sold. Before launching, our place in humanity should not be beggared but taken. Emily du Châtelet's position is not so different, I guess. Theoretically, she challenged women's place in discussing educational choices and in practice she creates a place for herself in the society of scholars of scientists of her time. So I would like to compare the two positions, two women philosophers, not at the same time, 18th century for the first one, 19th century for the other one, and um, to underline the, the importance of the social position to um, to consider the the work. Great, thank you. That's really interesting. Um, so I guess moving on, uh, what is one thing that each of you find especially impressive about the philosophical thoughts of Du Chatelet? Uh, we can start with you, Professor Onlys. Okay. Um, uh, I, I would like to I to add another thing to, okay. the, to your first question, if it's possible. Sure. Sure. Okay. Uh, perhaps, perhaps two things. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, perhaps uh, I, I can add the, the consciousness Emile de Châtelet has of all 
this, the, the position, the, the, the points I just mentioned. In the preface of the fable of bees, for example, she uses the reference to Montville, who provides a favorable framework for his own reflections. Indeed, she be, he begins by asserting that there is no difference in nature between boys and girls. Uh, it is education that instilled in them different criteria of honor and shame, different social practices, uh, assuming to include modesty and discretion as distinct and specific qualities of women to internalize the rules of society that are, one might say today, instruments of domination. And Emilie du Châtelet takes the opportunity to say in the earth, in the core of the fable, that education is like a mask that is put on women's minds to smother it, to the point that education alters the perception of the world and the capacity of moral judgment. Uh, so it seems interesting to, sorry, to follow um, the point, because it's a way for her to reflect of her own social position. And perhaps uh, I will add to, to finish, to answer to your first question, the fact that, that she struggled to build a philosophical position. I think, for example, of the way in which she chose to face the opposition of the Royal Academy of Science in her defense of, uh, of the principle of conservation of vis viva by publishing in the second edition of the Institution de Physique, the Foundation of Physics, the exchange that she had with the perpetual secretary of the Royal Academy of Science, Dortus de Meran. And in these exchanges, she laws openly at him. So it seems to me important too. <laughs> so do you, do you mean that um, the way in which she... So she is, she's quite kind of sarcastic and quite mm. rude towards him. So mm. can you, so do you mean that there's something important about how she was doing that um, that's related to the question about gender? Can you elaborate a yeah. little? Um, yes, it seems to me that she was socially in, inserted. She, she oh, has, inserted. She's yes, inserting she, herself. She has, sorry. she has a place mm. in this uh, society. So her social position allowed her to treat Moran yeah. in this way. Yeah. I see. Yes, that's very interesting. It, se it seems to me that and yeah. when we uh, analyze very precisely how she interve intervenes, okay, intervenes in, the in the fable of peace, uh, she found a place, a framework to propose her own position about education, about uh, gender questions into this book. And for me, it's not uh, just a question of translation, of bad or good translation, or fidel, exact or not, or vague translation. It is a, a proof of her place. It was possible for her to do that at this time, before, even before that dissertation of the propagation of fire has been published, because it's uh, three or four years before. And for me, it's because she is secure about her uh, a position in the society and it's a question of social integration. That's why it was interesting to compare with Louise Michel, which is not at all a noble, uh, which is a 
teacher for little boys and girls. <laughs> and, um, and she was uh, in jail, she was deported. She was... So perhaps we can articulate the relationship between this social position and the way to, to present their philosophical proposals. Thank you. It was, it was my, yeah. Yeah, yeah, my yeah. idea. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It seems she was really critically aware of her position in society and how that impacted her ability to do the work that she wanted to do. Mm. So circling back to uh, the second question, clearly lots of things are really impressive about her, but if you could each maybe pick one that you find especially impressive about her philosophical thought, namely in natural philosophy, uh, that would be great to discuss. So maybe let's start with you, Professor Catherine. Um, so what was really striking for me and what first got me interested in her work was that I was looking at natural philosophy, the state of natural philosophy in the early 18th century and seeing a number of problems that were on the table in the wake of Newton's Principia and the work of Leibniz. And she really, for me, put her finger on exactly where the critical problems were if you were somebody who was inclined to be favorable to a Newtonian way of doing things. There were sort of major outstanding problems in the foundations of the Newtonian project that she saw very, very clearly. And more than that, she didn't just see them clearly. She was willing to reach for resources for whatever was available kind of in the philosophical environment at the time and use them and transform them and work with them to solve these problems that she identified as being the most important problems that were left on the table at the time. So it's that clarity of insight and resourcefulness and then that she writes beautifully clearly as well. So the whole package for me is just, yeah, it's great. And you, Professor Anlis? Yes, perhaps two things, but I do agree with what Catherine said. But for her, it's a, it's a way. She took all what she needed, and she was not a Leibnizian or Newtonian on all this yarn, very not useful. But perhaps what seems to me very interesting about the question, which is very important for analyzing the philosophy in the first part of 18th century, that is how she deals with the relationship between physics and what we could say metaphysics, but we have to precise what does it mean, perhaps because it, it's not necessarily the same meaning as, uh, for example, in Descartes or in the 17th century. So first thing, the link she established between a reflection on freedom, we discussed about that yesterday, but a reflection of freedom and her de decisions concerning physics, what we can call the freedom of vis vivas principle of conservation. For me, it's interesting because she, she would like to find kind of coherence between t these two fields. And uh, the, the essay to do that is very innovative. She would like to ask if she can do agree with Leibnizian physics. And the way to ask that is to verify, to check if she can be free with this physics. So she has a, a real sense of this connection. And she would like to preserve kind of simple, unique principle to explain her freedom and the physics. So for me, it's a, it's a point very interesting and not so uh, often uh, present. 
And the, and the second one, perhaps, it's a reflection concerning the phenomenality. What we do with that? Do we consider that the phenomenal world is a, a world of illusion, of false perception, and we know that the, the true uh, world is another one, is a metaphysical one? Or do we consider that there is just one world we can know? It's a phenomenal one. And uh, there is no another one, uh, no wable. But she has another answer to this question. She uh, she tried to find a kind of autonomy of knowledge concerning the phenomenality. But she would like to build a link between this phenomenal world and another one, which is the metaphysical one. So this one is for me very inventive and very new because we are not in a Cartesian uh, system and we are not in the Newtonian one. And she does something else. Okay, it wa I was too long, but... No, no, that's fascinating. It's really interesting, yeah. So, and I agree with you about both and she's working at a time where we don't have you know there's not philosophy and physics and these different disciplines and it's not clear what answers and what questions you would expect to fall within the domain of physics and so this is all being worked out about what yeah what would count as a, an adequate physics and a complete physics i think it's really very interesting that for her one of the demands of adequacy is that we're human beings we're embodied we're in the world and if physics is the science of bodies and most then it needs to include human free bodily motion and free action. And I think to think about that as being a requirement on an adequate physics is, is extremely interesting. I agree with you. Um, and then the second thing that you talked about, again, this is about the whole, all the questions are on the table about what an appropriate method for learning about the natural world would be and um, yes how we can know and what the limits are of what we can know and so she's looking at the variety of opinions that are available at the time from people saying well we really can't know very much but we can know some properties of bodies but we can't know their true causes we can know just some effects all the way through to views that are what we would say now much more metaphysical where we want to know the ultimate nature of reality behind the appearances and the way she's negotiating that, I agree with you, is very interesting. And all the time her attention is on what can we know and how can we know it and recovering things that would be adequate for us to make sense of ourselves. And then, you know, she's very interested in the questions of how should we live? How should we live our lives? So she has an essay on happiness as well and on liberty. So those are questions that are sort of motivating her to think about what sorts of, yeah, what sorts of issues should be included within a project of physics. And if it can't do those things, then it's not good enough. Yeah, I think all of that really speaks to her range as a philosopher and a thinker that she has sort of hands in all of these different fields that we think of as separate. So clearly, you're both experts on her natural philosophy, especially as in what you mentioned, her masterwork, uh, the foundations of physics. So I think something that would be interesting to discuss is what you might have learned about Du Chatelet from reading each other's work. Um, so Professor Catherine, maybe we can start with what are some of the ways that Professor Anlis's scholarship on Du Chatelet has shaped your own understanding of her natural philosophy. So one thing is that Annalise comes to this from knowing a lot about Leibniz and I had I was coming to her from background of working on Newton. So one of the things that's been very important for me is that she just sees what Du Chatelet is doing through a kind of through a different lens and so different things become visible. She has a very beautiful some very beautiful work on hypotheses. So one of the things that Du Chatelet is perhaps best known for is a chapter 
in her books, in the Foundations of Physics, that's on hypotheses. And Annalise has thought very carefully about the role of hypotheses in um, Du Chatelet's work and in relation to how other people are talking about hypotheses at the time. And also just thinking about, she's thought more than I have, um, about how to think about Du Chatelet's position and so how she's situating herself in her social context and what that means for the kind of work that she's doing and what she's trying to tell us in the way that she frames what she's doing and her choices about style and genre and things like that. So lots of things. I mean, it's been great. One of the really wonderful things is when you sort of start working on someone where there isn't much secondary literature, a lot of the work is sort of very general. Um, and so to have somebody who's really down in the details to talk to um, has been really great. That's awesome. And Professor Anli, is the same question for you about yes. Professor Catherine's work. Yes, yes, many things, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, uh, especially your your last uh, book on the foundation uh, of physics. But I would like to begin with uh, a point of agreement. The thing that I like so much in the um, Catherine approach that it seems to me that we we use uh, the contemporary epistemic categories to analyze epistemological devices, for example, crucial experiment, falsificationism, epistemic pluralism, and we consider that it is useful to analyze what Émilie Duchatelet does precisely with her method. So it seems to me that this point is very important and, and perhaps not so frequent. Mm. <laughs> But to answer really to your question... <laughs> Uh, what uh, what I learned, it's the obligation to uh, to consider, to think, to reflect on the links between metaphysics and method, and more precisely, what you mean by mechanism, because you used it precisely in this book, and it seems to me that it could be uh, a good way to consider the phenomenality how we could analyze it by using the by following the concept of mechanism in her work and another thing that is the choice you did to consider that the central problem of the institution of the foundation of physics is bodily action it forced me to think about my own conception of centrality and to understand that for me it is the method starting from what What I said in French, dispositif, what she does with the method to obtain an answer to the nature or something like that. How she deals with the relationship between, for example, hypothesis and experiment. We could try to find different dispositifs to answer to this question. And starting from this dispositif and go back to problems and try to identify them. It seems to me that doing that, what you do, is a sure way to identify what is central. So it, for me, it, these three points are very important in your work. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, and I think that this was... So I mentioned before that one of the things that was striking about her work for me was the way that she was able to put her finger on really crucial unsolved problems at the beginning of the 18th century for natural philosophy. And I think we agree that method is perhaps the 
big mm. problem. How to proceed? How should we proceed from here? So we have different options apparently on the table, sort of the Cartesian and Newtonian options. And then we have Leibniz doing something that looks very different and it's not clear how to proceed, but all this emphasis on the principle of sufficient reason. But well, neither the Newtonian nor the Leibnizian methods are really worked out. And it's clear that there are problems in both cases. And I think she's very astute about this. Mm. And yeah, mm-hmm. really sees that this is a problem that has to be resolved before we can move forwards. Definitely. It's almost a strict sense of the word metaphysics in terms of how we do physics or how we ought pro- approach those fields. Um, so I guess as a final question, now that we've talked about what you agree upon and what you've learned from each other, is there something in the foundations uh, in her foundations of physics that you find that you both interpret very differently? And if so, what is that topic and how do you diverge in your interpretations? So either of you can feel free to start. Okay. <laughs> I can begin if you want. Okay. <laughs> uh, first, I would like to say uh, that I agree with Katwin that now we are at the time that the work on Emilie du Châtelet needs to move from the phase we know today that aims to show the philosophical interest of Emilie du Châtelet text to a phase that we have to discuss about a different interpretation. We yes. have to begin a kind of... <laughs> and get uh, into battle. the real details, the disagreements. <laughs> get into yes. the yeah. <laughs> and perhaps uh, my disagreement are more some question. How how you say a question of clarification. <laughs> oh, those are always we the nev- most scary. We yeah. never say that in French. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but perhaps you mention very uh, often the Newtonian method... I would like to ask, what do you have in mind by that? And perhaps, what do you prefer? Oh, okay. And it seems to me, it's not because I worked during 10 years on Leibniz, not at all for this reason, but it seems to me that sometimes there is a kind of minimization of the place of Leibniz in Duchatelet's analysis you, you do. And you know that I believe that there is more Wolfian philosophy in Duchatelet's text than Leibnizian, but sometimes it seems to me that there is a bit more Leibniz in her text that you... Yes, so I... Yes, go on, all right. <laughs> I have to remember the thing that's too... perhaps you say that the principle that Emilie Duchatelet used to found its, uh, her physics, especially uh, the principle of sufficient reasons, are not metaphysical in the, in the south of, of Emilie du Châtelet. But it seems to me that for Leibniz too, they are not metaphysical. They are architectonical. Perhaps there is no so big divergence. Okay. (laughs) So the first was about um, Newtonian method and what do I mean by that? Um, And there I'm really referring to the way in which books that she used that are sort of self-declared Newtonian books in natural philosophy or books about Newton's natural philosophy, um, such as by Muschenbrook and Scravzandi and Pemberton people, begin all of them with a section on method. And so all I'm doing is talking about what they say about method. And most of them will say, well, all we kind of need for method is Newton's rules of reasoning from his Principia, where he sets out four very brief rules that I think by no means can be understood as really telling you what to do in order to do natural philosophy. So they're incomplete as a method. So I'm just gesturing towards those and to the problem that despite beginning their books with chapters on method, it's very difficult to 
know how one would proceed and whether what and what the epistemic status of your results would be were you to follow whatever this method would work out to be in practice. Yes, but as you know very well, it doesn't mean the same thing for Newton, Clark, Cott, Maschenbrook, Gravesand. Even if they begin their book by the same uh, formal Newtonian method or something. So... Yes, so I, but I take that to be an indication of the state of the debate at the time yes. that, that she was inserting herself into. So I have this sort of vague umbrella term yeah. and all these people kind of call to the name of Newton as some kind of authority yeah. and then set out their own views and there isn't a coherence and there isn't and it's not well worked out. Um, so that's all I'm doing by using that label is kind of pointing rather than saying I think there's a, you know, that there's something that everyone was doing and they took themselves to but be doing. I, I have the question because sometimes it seems to me that she would like to um, rectify uh, some uh, very orthodox interpretation of what is the Newtonian method. And it seems to me that she can find what we could read when we read uh, Newton rather than the Newtonians. That's why... Um, so I'm not sure because I think so. I think there are various motivations we can see in her own work for this sort of shift towards thinking hard about method. And one is in so in her essay on fire, mm-hmm. um, where in the first version she does her explanations in terms of attraction. Mm-hmm which is a Newtonian thing to do. And then in the later version, she decides not to explain things in that way. And part of her reflections on method make her think that that's not a place where you should stop in giving explanations. In natural philosophy, you kind of, if you allow yourself to help yourself to attraction, then you don't ask the further questions that you ought to ask about how those phenomena mm-hmm. are occurring. So I think she does have a broader engagement than just with Newton. And then what what do we say about Newton? Do we look at what he was doing in the optics and yeah. ask about that for method? Or do we talk about the rules of reasoning and what's going on in the Principia? And they're very different texts. So, sure. Yeah. But for, for the attraction, she gives her interpretation, not in the dissertation, but in the, in the foundation of physics. Right. So, so, so it is interesting that she say goodbye to many authorities about what is Newtonian, and she she gave an interpretation as clearly different. For example, of uh, yes, I think this is. I agree with you. I think this is very important. Then, when she writes that chapter on attraction, yeah. she separates out Newton from the Newtonians. Yeah. But for me, this is somebody who had been swept along by the sort of the Newtonians. Uh-huh. Um, now saying, okay, I see a difference here from the kind of reasoning that he did and what they're doing, and I want to, yeah. And it's the same for Leibniz. You know that there was this idea of Leibniz Wolfianism, the system Leibniz, the Leibniz. So Wolfian system, and she said explicitly, "I know that the Leibniz thought is not the Wolfian thought yes. in the foundation of physics too." So it's interesting for idea of the precise uh, concept in the different school of thought. Yeah. yeah, I think it shows that she, you know, she was thinking very clearly, and she yeah. wasn't. Yes, mm. and she was careful about this. And just so to pick up on the Leibniz and yeah. Wolf presence in there. 
So I hope that people will, who know more about Leibniz and Wolf than I do, go back to her text and write about those aspects and those influences. As I mentioned, I came to the text from a Newtonian background, so this is what's going to stand out to me. This is what's visible. And it's supposed to be, you know, as a little four-chapter book, an offering as a beginning <laughs> or as a contribution, not a definitive piece. And I hope that you will, yes, and other people will bring these different perspectives and in this way mm-hmm. we'll begin to see all the richness that's mm-hmm. that's in there, yes. And I think that speaks exactly to what you both mentioned before about how it's time for a shift to deeper analysis of her work uh, beyond more introductory levels. So I think that's a great note to end on. So thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for listening to the New Narratives in the History of Philosophy podcast. The New Narratives Project and podcast are funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. In the spirit of the project, the music for the podcast is 17th century female composer Elizabeth Claude Jaquette de la Guerre Sonana No. 2 in D major, performed on the violin by Bezervid Amonish. For more information about the project and for future episodes, please visit our website newnarrativesinphilosophy.net and follow us on Facebook. We look forward to discussing all these new figures and ideas with you.